One thing COVID-19 has taught us is that the world can change in radical ways that only a short time ago were unimaginable. Everything is on the table right now. This podcast is about imagining a more beautiful world. I talk to people who inspire me, not only with their ideas, but their experience about how things can be better than we currently think is possible. This week, I'm joined by Rob Grundle. His website calls him a storytelling consultant. He's also a leadership coach, hip hop artist, Christian, and proud dad. One of the most provocative things he says in the interview is that hell is an unbiblical heresy. He has a very different view of Christianity to the one that I grew up with, one that is based in love and grace rather than judgment and punishment. We also talk about his optimism for the future, why how we relate to each other in solving problems is more important than solving the problem itself, why we are collectively getting the results that no one wants, how to know what your contribution to the world should be, dealing with shame, and the fact that what we really need to reimagine is our relationship with everything. Hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome, Rob, to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here. So we're recording this as London has recently gone under increased restrictions. We're not allowed to mix with other people inside. We're heading into mm. winter, the worst recession since World War II. There's a climate crisis going on in case anyone has forgotten. How are you feeling about the future right now? Uh, I feel the future kind of more keenly in every day. So rather than in the past, I would be thinking about the future as here are the five things that will happen in the next two years. Now I'm thinking about the future as um, I have a piece of plastic in my hand that I'm about to throw into the bin and that's got, where is that ending up and how long is it going to take before it breaks down? So the future that actually is appearing more and more here mm. now, whereas in the past, the future was always sometime in the future. I can get to that. Um, recently, my oldest son, he's nine, um, twice in the last five weeks, someone else in his year, which is a bubble, has gotten COVID, which means that all the kids that need to go home for 14 days, they all have to go into quarantine for 14 days. So I might have in a week, I might think, oh, I've got five days this week to work. And then on the Monday, he comes home. I've only got one day that week to work. Yeah, exactly. I've only got one day that, that week to work. And so in that one day, I just go, what do I do in this one day? And how am I? I'm really present with how this moment is actually what I do in this moment, how that actually impacts my future. Because I can choose to lie in bed, I can choose to write, I can choose to, you know, there's so many choices I can make now that impact the future rather than thinking, than making lots of different plans because they all seem to evaporate very quickly. So it sounds like you feel that the future is now more immediate. It feels more immediate, more connected with the present. Yes, exactly. Everything I do now has a, has a direct impact. And I, perhaps that's the most exciting thing about this time for me is, 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 is actually becoming so aware I cannot I I can absence myself 
but I notice the impact of myself absencing myself more and more. What do you mean if by I absencing? My... Yeah, good question. It's the opposite of presencing or being present, I suppose. So absencing is, is saying deliberately. And, and some days I do myself. That thing would be me in my bed watching YouTube for a day, um, fully, fully disconnecting, just going, give me content. Whereas if I'm presencing, that, that actually means the opposite of that, which is being alive to everything that I'm feeling and everything that I'm sensing. That is also very tiring, I think. And I think that's what everyone's noticing is that actually everyone is presencing themselves far more. But, geez, it's... Um, if you're at all a sensitive person, then this time is sending you a lot of information that does require um, rest. But interesting, like rest, rest is different than absencing. Absencing is saying I pulling myself out and actually not um, avoiding. Whereas rest is saying I am now choosing to spend this time in a place of recovery, which is, I think, two very different modes. Yeah, I guess we're being, we're, we're definitely being forced to let go of planning more, forced to let go to just seeing what happens. Because as you say, you make, might make a plan for what you're going to do this week and then something completely changes that and that happens yeah. like to everyone all the time. There's a term I love that someone, I've, I can't remember who said it, but I've borrowed it, which is the obliteration of expectation. Mm. Like, boom, <laughs> obliterated. That's a great word. That's really interesting because someone said to me last night, all the best things have happened to me in my life when I let go of expectations. Mm. Mm. so do you feel optimistic or do you feel like oh god this is all so depressing <laughs> you know, where is like the world is going downhill like do you feel a mix how are you feeling about your life and the world how things are at the moment if the earth rids itself of the virus that is humanity <laughs> in the next 200 years in the next 200 years then uh then we probably deserve that right uh that's that's the natural order of things and if that happens um then that's what happens and so for me i guess Personally, the only way in which I feel pessimistic or like oof, that kind of feeling is because I have children mm -hmm. and I've, I've brought them into the world and I might have brought them into a world which is going to be, they, they're probably going to have a harder life than I've had. And if not them, then definitely their children. I think that's absolutely true. That either they will have a harder life than me because of course, from you know post-war, it's been going up, and now we're about to hit a tipping point, and it's about to go the other way. Um, so, I guess to answer your question directly, yes, I am optimistic, or yes, I am so energized to be creating great things for the future collectively. Mm. And if we don't do it in time, then. We didn't do it in time. There's, not, there's nothing I can, there's, right? There's nothing I can do about that. 
the only thing I can do is, is take responsibility in my own life for being in the present and responding to that. And, um, and then we end up where we end up. There's this, there's this thing, I guess, the, the difference between what your intention is and what your expectation or your attachment is to the outcome. So I have a very, what did you ask me? Am I a optimistic person? I would just say, I don't really think in that way. I more think of how positive or how energized is my intention. Because I have no control over what the outcome is going to be. Um, I hope for good things. I hope for good things. I guess rather than expecting good things, I hope for good things. So this time is energizing you to create more positive things, create a more positive world. Yes, to create a more, to create a world that produces the results that we actually want, mm -hmm. as opposed to creating a world with results that nobody wants. Mm -hmm. So what results, is, what results do you want? Um, what results do I want? It's interesting. I started out life as a software developer and so many of those projects that I was part of as a developer failed because we were so focused on what the result was going to be. We're going to, so the result would be, we're going to get finish this system by this date, or we're going to write this bit of code by this date, or we're going to, you know, something like that. Uh, but we never paid any attention to was how we were going to be together during the process of that. And I'm always leaning far more in how we are together because there has been such an emphasis on what results are we going to get to. Because in, in, inevitably what humans do is that they go, it's even happening with climate change, man, where, it's, where people say, right, so we need to stop this thing from happening. And then we, build, and then we all build a plan to make that thing stop that thing from happening. Mm. Um, but in the process of doing that, we're not thinking about how we're doing that collectively. How are we actually doing that collectively? So I, for me, and I, I think it's just my own work, it is important what the results are, but that question for me is not important. It definitely should be for somebody, but it's not for me. <laughs> the question the question for me is interesting is, um, in what we do, how do we want to be together? Mm -hmm. Because there's so little attention on that. And so if, if, I, if, if that's, if you ask me, what do I want in, what am I looking for in that? I think it's, three layers and it is, I'm borrowing this from um, a guy called Otto Sharma, which is kind of the personal, the relational and then the ecological, you know, it was always those at those three layers. So that as we move together, a person is always grounded in who they are. So a, a person always feels like I am able to say what I think. I'm able to be who I am. 
something like that. And then relationally that we're always able to say, um, we always see everyone else as human, you know, first before, before we go, what do we need to get to? Because so often it's like, what, what's your role? What's my role? Let's get to the result. And then ecologically, um, and I think this is the one where we have the biggest gap is what's our relationship to the land in everything that we do what do we want our relationship to the land to be um, do we want it to be pulling resources out do we want a break even or do we actually want it to be generative mm. and maybe that's true on all levels actually that on both the person on the personal the relational so you and me and also to the land the the great system that we live in that everything that we are doing is generative but my bet is that if we're going to do that we are probably going to be working much more slowly and much more locally i think i think those are the those are the aspects of that mm. um to actually pay attention because yeah to pay attention to those to those processes which is interesting because things because we're running out of time so we so they, i think i think it's a really important paradox to recognize that in order for us to change, we need to move more slowly so that we don't run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's truly, that's truly my sense. And I'm not sure I have much to back that up, but that's my sense of things. So individually, it's about people being able to be themselves and express themselves. Collectively, it's about seeing other people as human beings. And at an ecological level, it's about regenerate um having a regenerative regenerative relationship with the land as opposed to just yeah. extracting all the time and i that's think right. that's what what that makes me think of straight away in terms of um how people seem to go about trying to improve the world at the moment is how much polarization there is on social media in particular but everywhere really and uh, coming up to the u.s election and um <laughs> uh there are lots of people who hate people who vote the other way to them. So it's like, okay, we, I have this goal of a better future for America, which, in, which will look like X, Y, Z. And for me to get that great future, I need to try and annihilate these guys because they're, <laughs> they're idiots. They're morons. Right. They're, they're evil. They're in, they're in the way. They're in the way. Yep. So they're as soon as you start asking, well, how are we being together in creating a more beautiful America? You start to look at what? Not, we're not being very nice to each other. <laughs> yeah. When I say we, I know we're not American. But yeah, exactly. yeah. So it would totally change how you would go about improving the country if you were to take that into account with all of your kind of campaigning for a health, better healthcare system, better economy, whatever it is you're really into. Yeah. For sure. I mean, if you looked at and imagine if you grab those three layers and extracted like just a few principles from them and then apply them to any capitalist society, you'd probably find they're completely at odds with each other. Yeah. Because the result, the result that's killing us is, is GPD, GPD, GDP. GDP. Yeah. That's, that's what's killing us. What's, what's killing us is that we are so married to a GDP, whether that is an, a countrywide GDP, or a personal GDP, which is which can which you can count either as money, or you can count as amassing any kind of thing. 
Like that's that's what's 400 years ago. That's what we started with the industrial age and these kinds of things, and that became the primary measure of success, personal and also at all levels, right? Um, companies, what's our what's our what's our bottom line? And all the res results that we've received that we nobody wants is because we're all so married to that metric or mm -hmm. that you know that KP that KPI. Mm -hmm. um, and so, just, I guess as, as a slight left turn, it's you know when when you listen to Black Lives Matter, they say. Um, if you agree that Black Lives Matter, then you also agree, and this is this is this is a really big thing. If you say Black Lives Matter, then implicitly within that you also say capitalist societies are killing all of us, and that, and that and that I reject completely reject the idea of the gross domestic product as our primary heuristic. If you if you say um, because all this that's been built has been built up on, off the back of structural racism, the very structure that we're sitting in, the thing that um, holds GDP as being um, the primary KPI for all of us has, has been built within that structure. And so, um, and this is my own personal white thing a little bit, which is I, I've seen that kind of rhetoric in the black community for a very long time. And I always thought of it as like, oh yeah, you know, demolish capitalisms, yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know, I really thought of it that way. That was, that was my reaction. It's like, how can, you, how can you equate racism with, you know, with um, um, you know, the corporate structures that have been set up in America? But uh, I think what this time is showing us that actually they are completely interrelated. And so, what that means, and so we're back to the question of uh, what results am I looking for, or how do we do it? It's going to come also at a sacrifice to those who have a lot, and that includes me. I have a lot. If, you, if I put, there's a great little website you can put you can put in how much you earn a year, and it shows you what what percentile you are. And I'm definitely top two percent, possibly one percent in the world. And I, and I, in the world. Definitely top three percent. Let's say that easily, to, easily top three. No question about that. Wow. So I'm in, I'm in the top three percent in the world, and um, and so for me to actually to truly change will take a sacrifice, which will will have to include some aspect of how I amass my wealth, and. I'd, I haven't got an answer to that yet, but I know that as a truth. And, um, and so that's, that's part of the change. Everything that I talked about, those three things, um, relationship to each other, relationship to the land and the relationship to myself, um, part of that is having to sacrifice my culpability in the system that has actually brought the world to where it is now. What... Um... The writer Charles Eisenstein says about the, when he's when he's asked when he's told by environmentalists, you do realise we're all going to have to make a big sacrifice. Mm. What he says to that is, uh, yeah, and, and we're going to have to make do with a lot less, a lot less stuff, mm. a lot less energy, a lot less travel. He says, no, we're going to make do with a lot more 
because in a more beautiful world we're going to have more connection more beauty more love more connect more, more of all the things that really matter to us That's more right. art more music more creativity um, more dance more singing because in one way our world is very rich uh, with, with stuff with money but in another way we live in scarcity yeah a scarcity of touch a scarcity of time a scarcity of connection a scarcity of intimacy um so much loneliness a scarcity of, of 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 physical and mental health in many rich countries yeah so and, and i think that's really important because um uh, as uh, when i've been uh, i used to consider myself a very uh, passionate campaigning environmentalist and i felt like it was basically part of my job to persuade everyone to stop doing all the things they like doing <laughs> mm-hmm. so i know you love eating beef but you need to stop I know you love travel, mm-hmm. but you need to just stay at home. <laughs> I, kn- I know mm-hmm. your car is really handy, but you need to get the bus because it's like, well, that's just what you need to do. You, we, need to get, we need to make all these sacrifices. But A, a that was just, I didn't think that was ever going to happen. <laughs> the people were just going to no. voluntarily en masse give up all these things. And B, um, that was missing this, this piece of like, well, what's, what is it we are creating? That's going to mean right. that giving up all these things won't feel like a sacrifice. Actually, yeah, you'll be like, "Well, I don't miss that. I don't miss that way of doing things." Yes, I think the truth is, and this, um, I love what Charles is saying, and I think he's absolutely right. Everything that everything that comes next is going to be creation, innovation, but of course. Um, What's that about the necessity? Invention is the mother of whatever it is. Necessity is the mother of invention. Yes, is that it? I think so. Yes. Um, I recently said to my wife, I don't think our generation, and by that I mean her and I, don't have the bones to actually truly make that sacrifice in our lifetime unless we are made to. Unless the, the 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 amount of resources that we have access to actually becomes depleted, so that again we'll have to innovate. Um, what I'm noticing, it's interesting where this conversation is going. William Gibson said, "You know, the future is already here; it's just unevenly distributed." And I've been tracking. I've I heard that probably ten years ago, nine years ago. And I've been tracking that saying or that idea just in the world as it is at the moment. And I think this is true that um, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And more often than not, it's unevenly distributed to where the poor are (laughs) because they do not have the resources to be able to, to insulate themselves. So, so I, can, I, could, I can buy myself 10 iPads today. I can buy myself 500 bottles of water, plastic bottles of water. You know, I can live as if with my resources that, that I have, I can still live like I was living five years ago, like I was living 10 years ago. There are many parts of the world where that's less and less possible it's actually impossible to do you actually have to you have to start living in a new way and even like the refugee crisis you know from the middle east to here is a, is a really good example of that 
the people in Syria, the people in Lebanon cannot live, physically cannot live like they were living 10 years ago. They have to make a move, they have to make a shift. Meanwhile, we in here in Britain say, because we haven't seen the future yet, we're sitting here going, this is great. Uh, and don't, don't interrupt me. <laughs> don't interrupt my comfort. Don't interrupt um, my past with, with what the future or what the present already is. Um, and so how we respond to the future leaking into our lives is really important. And actually, that we and again, we're, and then we're back to the start of the conversation again, going, where is your presence? And notice what's coming, and respond to that rather than insulate yourself with comfort and or try and keep the thing that you had. Um, that time is ending, and depending on how much money you have or what your um, ability for discomfort is, will depend on how you sit or work with that. I think, and in that, I'm speaking to myself as well. Yeah. And also what you're saying is true, that, that what we can create, truly like create, create, you know, from us as being human beings with other human beings is what if I can get a little spiritual, is what's eternal rather than temporal. Mm-hmm. The dollar I make the dollar I make now lives as long as I live, you know, or maybe less even less than that. <laughs> But the things that I create, which the things that Charles Eisenstein is talking about, have the ability to actually live on beyond me. So how do you apply this? Because it might be sounding a bit abstract to people. How do you apply this to a normal, say, day at work? Um, Mm. This this idea of like leaning into a different future, of of things emerging, of having these different levels that you're trying to think of, individual relationship with other people, ecological, like... Because I, I think one of the things that people often think, and I've often thought, is, okay, so the world isn't how I would love it to be. It's not the beautiful world that, yeah. that, that, um, that I could imagine. But what do I do about it? Mm-hmm. So what do you do in a practical sense with these ideas that you've talked about? It's interesting, isn't it? There's actually so much to do. I, I love the book, How to Resist. Have you read that? I can't no. remember who wrote it. It's a very short little book. And um, because I think the person who wrote it was getting so frustrated with people going, the world sucks, what do I do to change it? Um, and he, he tells his own story, but stories of other people as well, who notice something that is wrong. And then this book is a playbook of how to organize with other people to actually change it. So acknowledge your power, acknowledge what's happening, um, find your allies, and then work at it. And that could be something like, um, for example, I think it was the university in which this guy was working. He saw he spoke to the cleaners. He spoke to the cleaners there and found out that they were paid nothing. I'm going to I'm kind of completely butcher this story. It's so much better in the book. Um, and so on this particular university campus, he started organizing a campaign so that they would all get the living wage, which is like what, like 10, 15 cleaners? I'm not sure, 20 cleaners. Initially, it was very hard to actually... Um, convince them because they, they obviously didn't want to be fired and if they looked like they were making trouble 
then they'll get fired. So there's a story in there of, of how he organized the cleaners and then eventually this university gave them the living wage. And then as a result, what that meant for all those people, um, how much more time they could spend with their families, da 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 you know. That's the first thing this person did. Then he took it to Whitehall and after a long period of time, he did the same for a, for a number of cleaners in one department at Whitehall. Then he did it at another department at Whitehall and all of a sudden there was a, um, a running table <laughs> of which department was paying their cleaners the living wage. And all of a sudden, and if you were at the bottom, then you weren't doing that well. So all of a sudden there was now a public pressure that was on all these departments to get all their cleaners up on the living wage and eventually they all got there. I was really inspired by this um, because, again, I, it comes back down to the thing about being local. You know, like this guy is sitting in his university where he's an academic and he's looking around and he's going, there is, there's an oppression, there's an injustice where I have some power. He had some power to act. If the cleaners had self-organized, they would have all probably got fired, but because he... Organ helped organize with them. Well, maybe the cleaners might have actually, though, that's, that's probably not fair to say that. So I, I have a sense that it's really about going really small and really local. You, we, we, it's impossible to change the, wor the world, you know. But if you look around you and go, where's the oppression and where's the injustice? And leaning into that. And then in the process of that, this guy was sacrificing himself. He was sacrificing his time. He was sacrificing um, himself so that someone else wouldn't be oppressed or someone else would have justice or someone else would have more time with their family and so on. Um, so I, I really think it's about paying attention. And not everyone's an activist, I realize that, but that's, that's one example of... And there might be a ton of injustice in your company. You know, and you might, and you might, have, you might be one of the um, recipients of that injustice. And then you go, well, how much does it matter to me that I keep my job? Again, this is a question of sacrifice. How much does it matter that I keep my job for the sake of actually fighting for an injustice? And I, I think more and more, these are these these are the decisions. Because why do I want to keep my job? Why? Because I want security, so I can keep paying my mortgage so I can keep doing that. As long as we're all trapped into the idea that we've got to get this GPD, this personal GDP, <laughs> um, that's going to um, keep us from actually getting the results that we truly want, which is a really, which considering the, what, how we've been brought up, is, it's a really big sacrifice to make. But yes, start local and notice and then go where's the discomfort oh if i lean into this what what might be the um the impact on me or what might be the result for me and it, and it might be um you know like a meaningful cost that's i guess that's what i'm looking for it might be a meaningful cost that you'll that you might be putting up for yourself the risk might be high and, you, and then you ask yourself, do I care or don't I care? And, and there we go again with presencing or absencing. Do I, uh, can I absence myself from this injustice so that I get my money? 
or what happens when I truly presence myself with it and with others around me and lean into it? And is and am I willing to accept the risk of that? And I think those are the questions that um, that are the really important questions in this time. And how do you apply this in your in your work? Because I know that I think you're probably one of the people I know who's most who, who's most aligned with what they really care about in their work, yeah. both in your leadership work, your coaching, and your the music that you do. There's so many different projects that you do that are um, that you do because you really care about them and you sustain yourself from it. And I actually know mm. relatively few people who manage to do both. They're either passionate mm. about it and they're broke or they have a well-paid job <laughs> and they hate it. <laughs> so how are you currently in the work that you're doing now trying to apply this stuff? How are you trying to presence and um, to reimagine the world as you're talking about? That's a good question. So first of all, it's really important to say is that um, and it's important for everyone to admit. Can we swear? Is that allowed? That's allowed, yeah. <laughs> is, that I'm, is that I'm full of bullshit, right? And I think we all need to, we all need to admit that. We, unless we can admit I'm full of bullshit and every, anyone who presents a perfect system to to something is full of bullshit and every system that that exists need to needs to acknowledge where does the bullshit sit within it here's the bullshit here's and here's the bullshit in me right so the bullshit in me is i've worked for tobacco companies uh the bullshit in me is um right now my wife is working really hard and making lots of money and i'm looking after the kids so i'm not sustaining myself why is it bullshit that you worked for a tobacco company? Because I know that what you were doing for that tobacco company, you cared about and you thought was actually a positive thing. You didn't sell out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I can... There is absolutely an element of selling out there. Is there? Why? What happened... What can I say there? At that time, I chose to work with them because it was interesting work and I wanted to learn. And I was working with people who really wanted other people to grow. So I think that's what the, I think that's the thing was in that company. And this isn't a justification, but this is just the truth. The truth is that I care way more about growing people than getting a company to their results. It just so happens that the, the result of this company is selling more of something which makes everyone pretty unhealthy. But um, because I was working with people who truly cared how other people grew, um, that was good enough for me at that time. And um, if anyone called, wanted to call me out on that for any number of reasons, I would be the first to wave the white flag. Because I'm pretty sure all of us have a level of bullshit constantly in our life at some, <laughs> at some level, you know. Like if you leveled any accusation at me. And I think it's the really important, what you're talking about, I think is actually really important, which is, um, I want to come back to your point, but as a little excursion, is the question of judgment. But maybe we'll hit that in a second. I don't, I don't want to go too far out. How we judge each other, you know, like how do we do this? Again, I think you said it before, we 
the, in, in America, there is two clear sides of the aisle and they're constantly judging each other and they're getting nowhere. In fact, they're not going nowhere, they're going down the ditch. Um, and so the path is one where we sit with each other and we sit with each other's bullshit and go, ah, oh, yeah, you, you too, me too. Now how, do we, now how do we move on together with that? Um, and so I'll start, I'll start off by saying that, um, and that that contract that with Big Tobacco was actually a sustaining force for about three years. Um, so even though what you were doing was having a really positive impact on the people in the company, you feel guilty or you feel like it was a, a negative thing because what those people were getting better at was selling cigarettes. Look, I don't think I made anyone better or worse at selling cigarettes. I'll be honest. I think what what um, because the system the, the system of that company is so incredibly large to think that I could even have a little bit of impact on the bottom line in um, in Mexico <laughs> would be egomania. Um, yeah, for me, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. For me, but for me, it was enough to grow people. And now I want to do something else. I learned something there. I think it's really important. You could, we, we're going to try things out in our lives. We're going to try things out. And I don't even want to say make mistakes because none of that was a mistake. You know, that's what I did and that's what I chose to do. And that was what was right. And I learned from that. And now I'm going to do the next thing. <laughs> and I think, um, I think that's what's, important so i don't have in short i don't know is the answer i don't know how one does meaningful work and gets paid for it there isn't there is no formula for that that i have found and if i had i think so many more people were doing it and i would be making a lot of money <laughs> yeah um i think it's one of the biggest challenges that we face at the moment it's what everyone wants of course everyone wants to be spending the majority of yeah. their time doing something that's meaningful and they want to have enough money and, and, and yep. yet, despite the fact that so many people Beautiful. want it, few people have it. Yeah. So what's interesting is that, um, if I can get biblical with you, the, Jesus said to people, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. And mammon is like stuff and God is the eternal. And so we, we want to serve two masters. In the world that we're in, we're, we're going... I don't want to serve the master of mammon anymore. It's meaningless to me, but it is my means for survival. Whereas if we look at, and I've been reading a bit about this, like if we look at um, the nations that were in Australia for 80,000 years, what the tribes did was that everything was spiritual, including the collection of their food. Everything was spiritual. In everything that they did, they were serving the thing that was eternal. Included year because the rainbow serpent or whatever it might be, everything was in cycles. Everything was ritualized and everything was spiritual. Everything, and also meant that spirituality became not a do I believe in God, but the act of digging up the yam was a belief in God or or the gods, if you like. Wow. You know, you know those those things that were indistinguishable from each other. The act of digging up a yam was also an act of worship, if you like. 
or a, or a, in something like that, you know. Worshipping, worshipping the earth or worshipping? Worshipping, um, yeah, much of, I, I don't want to misrepresent anything, maybe worshipping the earth or participating in the great mystic cycle. They were participating in the great mystic cycle by digging up a yam and then cooking it and eating it that night. Wow. Amazing. Which, which can both seem like so lofty or just incredibly practical. Just really, like literally down to earth. It's like, uh, this is, in, uh, in the First Nations, every natural phenomena, so every hill, tree of any kind of note had a story or a song associated with it. And, and, it, and so, for example, that hill over there, uh, it might be like a big hill and a small hill. That's where the lizard ran, um, got so thirsty, and it died from thirst. And it's not that it died there, but it still lies there. The lizard is still there. Uh, and so there's a mythology that exists, and the mythology is connected to the earth that I can see over there. And you go, well, that's kind of, that's a bit weird, or that's a bit stupid. Or, you know, you can think of well, how, but it isn't actually, you can see it plainly isn't a lizard. But all the metaphors just existed in the world as it was, and that gave them the reason for meaning and the reason for living, etc., etc. So back to the starting point that we talked about, you know, like connection with self, connection with the other, and connection with the land, there does need to be a system around that that actually functions so that we collectively and we do, which we don't have you know we've spent 400 years of completely eradicating any kind of um, spiritual system from our lives so now so that now it only exists on a sunday or on a wednesday or you know whatever it might be and we kind of call that spirituality but it's actually um we're kind of stealing moments of meaning now rather than the entire thing being meaningful mm. I'm glad you brought up God and Jesus because um, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was reimagining Christianity. Mm -hmm. And um, I think a, a lot of people my age had a similar experience at school with Christianity. So we grew up singing hymns uh, in assembly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and saying the Lord's Prayer. And it wasn't like, do you, do you want to do this? Do you believe it? <laughs> You're just told this is what we're all going to do now. We're all going to sing a song about with the fact that we love Jesus. And um, this went on through primary school, secondary school. And as we got older, more and more people were sort of um, made it clear that they really didn't, they didn't get in, they didn't like it. They weren't into it. They didn't believe in it. Um, I can, I can also remember one of my friends when we were supposed to sing the national anthem at school in the assembly, he refused to stand up. And he got a detention because he's just like, I, I, it was the first rebellion I, I'd ever seen. <laughs> being like, I just, I'm not, I don't believe what you're telling me I should believe and, 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 and do this praising of God, which I, which I, who I don't believe in. And, and I think that's a lot of people's experience mm. of Christianity, that it's something that was kind of force fed to them. It wasn't really, they weren't given an option. Do you want to believe in this or not? Um, and, and what came with it for a lot of people is um, a huge amount of judgment, going back to that word that you, you talked about earlier, we're judging each other. Mm -hmm. uh, judgment in the sense of there's all these rules in Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. There's the Ten Commandments, but there's loads of other ones as well. And if you break them, God will judge you. Mm -hmm. 
And in my church, I know every church uh, teaches different things about Christianity, but where I grew up, they taught that we are constantly sinning. We sin even with our thoughts. And uh, because our sin is so ugly in the eyes of God, who is of course perfect, we deserve everlasting punishment in hell. Absolutely. Of <laughs> And, and there isn't actually anyone who doesn't deserve that. And there's no way out of that because Adam sinned originally. And if you were Adam, you would have done the same thing. So you sin even before you existed. And therefore you are down. But by God's grace and by thank you to Jesus, you, can, you have the option of being saved if you praise him and if you follow him. That was, that was how Christianity was presented to me. And I thought, what a load of rubbish. <laughs> so so what was rubbish in that for you i want to i want to find out what 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 did you what did you well again what did you call bullshit on within that um well there's a, there's a there was a lot of things uh the idea that you know the creation story if you go into it supposedly the world is only ten thousand years old or just like i think there was a natural kind of rebellion against uh all the rules and the the um, the miracles, like, does it, did this, did this really happen? But yeah. when I got to, um, sixth form, um, I had a friend who was really into Christianity and he got me to go to the local, to the, to the youth group. And I actually ended up getting quite into it. And I read this book called the case for Christ by Lee Strobel, where he, mm -hmm. he documents what he calls the historical evidence for the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. And I thought, well, if that is the case, if he really was crucified, if he really was, if he really did uh, resurrect and there is historical evidence for that, everything else must be true. Mm -hmm. So for a while, I bought into it and I went to church like twice a week. I was write, reading my Bible every day and I was judging people for not being Christian. <laughs> You're going to go to hell. As you should. <laughs> as is your divine right <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately i couldn't believe some fundamental things that i was told that i needed to believe one of them being yeah. that we all deserve everlasting punishment just for being mm -hmm. just for being human we deserve hell and one of the other main mm -hmm. ones was the idea that again not every church teaches that that uh, christianity is a sin and also that my church mm. uh, in Seven Oaks in Kent, they, would, they were teaching at that time. I don't know if it's changed. Women are different to men. Women shouldn't teach. Um, mm. There were no women vicars, things like that. And so I rejected it again. And I think that that is, um, I, that's quite a common experience for people to have had Christianity presented to them in that way of judgment, rules, force fed. Um, how how have you ended up being Christian, believing it so wholeheartedly as I know you do? And how do you reimagine Christianity in a different way to the way that I've just described it? Because I think that is how a lot of people, when they think about Christianity, people from my generation, that is what they imagine. That's what they think about. And that's what yep. they're not into. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's... Um, first, I'm going to talk about an experience and then I'm going to talk about belief. So um, I always wanted to believe in God. I had a book of Bible stories growing up and 
um, that my parents gave me and I was, I was, I wanted to be, I really wanted to be, I'm sure you can picture it. I wanted to be a good little Christian. I mean, look at this face. Um, and so when mum would go to church, I would go to church. If she didn't, I wasn't that bothered. Occasionally I'd pray for stuff like, you know, I wanted a girl to fall in love with me. She didn't. <laughs> God failed you. Yeah, exactly. Seriously, that was my prayer every night. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, what was she my called? Goodness. Mickey. She was Mickey. a Finnish girl. Please well, God will make you fall in love with me. <laughs> and then we were running a caravan park in Tasmania. This is 1994. And there was a dude who was living at the caravan park like a, as, a, as a permanent resident. And so he'd come in and pay rent every week. And every time he'd pay the rent, pretty much without fail, he would talk about an experience that you could basically meet God or know that God was real. And this went, this went on for a while. And I was 14, so it was like, whatever, big deal, or 13. Uh, but then one day, mum actually finally went, okay, it's a long story, but she went, okay. And she went to a church meeting where they also uh, had this idea that God can actually give you proof of his existence as it's laid out scripturally. And then she came home and she said, I now speak in tongues and I've been told that I have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling inside of me, which is an experience that was documented in Acts, uh, in, in Acts 2. And so because I'd always followed my mum a little bit, like going to church, those kinds of things, I thought, oh, that's interesting. So for two weeks, I talked to what her about you, it. Is that really what you thought? <laughs> yeah. Your mum came home saying, I can speak in tongues. And you were just yeah. like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I would be like, dude, what? Dude, I, I, was home, I was homeschooled. So, you know, <laughs> it says a lot about my relationship with my mother, I think, actually, that I, that I just took it on. I was just like, she went, because my mum is the, the most earnest person you've ever met. Like, she's the most pure, earnest person you've ever met. I, I cannot describe her in any other way. It's painful sometimes, actually. Painful. <laughs> I love you, mum. And, uh, but so earnest. Like, I'm pretty earnest, as you can you probably tell. You are quite tell. earnest, yeah. Yeah, but mum is like five levels above me. <laughs> Mum would never say the word bullshit. Um, and so for two weeks, I, I kind of kicked it over. And then one night I went to my bed room at eight o'clock and I went to close the door, which I normally didn't do. And I got on my knees and I said, God, give me the Holy Spirit. Just like that. And then a few seconds later, I spoke in tongues. Wow. And from that moment, I, I cannot describe it any other way. Before that moment... It was, is there a God? I'm not sure where he is, what's going on, what does the Bible mean? After that moment was, I don't need to search anymore. I know, I know God is real. What, what was the like, I don't, I, speaking in tongues? It, was, it felt like, it's hard, I mean, now I'm, now I'm going to break apart the mystery. It's hard to describe. I said, God, give me the Holy Spirit. I feel a warm flood through my body and I feel my tongue, I feel my tongue just want to start talking. And it just starts speaking this other language which I still have now and I turn on and turn off as I want. That was, that was, it was it definitely some sort of divine experience. And I can point to before and after that moment and how I was before and how I was after. Mum has the same story that before she felt like this, after she felt like that. Now what's interesting and I, I constantly go back to that moment because that moment is 
fundamental in my life. It, it informs everything, even who I am now. And it's important to actually go back to that moment because what happens then is then you start going to church and then all the dogmas start getting lined up. Mm. So that's the experience part. Um, and that's pure and that is divine and no man had a, had a hand in that, right? There was, no, there was no intercessor, there was nothing like that. And I think that is the key thing that I was missing because I was just trying to work it all out intellectually. What is the yeah. evidence? What are the arguments for there being God? And you're just going to yeah. tie yourself up in circles or just keep... Because, that's right, because you, you will not find God, which, is my, which might sound contrary to what I said before, but you will not find God in material things, including ideas. Mm -hmm. or, or thought you will you will not find God in that you, you can spend forever and so then the idea of belief and this is something I've already cut only hit very recently let's take something like um, creation as an example some people believe that creation was seven days was over seven days ten thousand years ago um, I'm comfortable I'm, I believe whatever the scientists um, but what difference does it make if I believe it or if I don't believe it? Because the thing is that what happens within religions that we go, we are given all these dogmas to hold in our mind that I believe them. It actually makes no difference. What difference does it make? There is no, Santa Claus isn't in the sky with a scorecard going, what does, this, what does Andy believe and do I tick it off or not? And oh, he's going to church, so I'm going to tick off the Christian box. Oh, no, no, he's not going to church anymore. I'm going to wipe it out. There is no big Santa in the sky with a scorecard, which I think is how so many people imagine God to be because that's, that's what we've inherited. That's a very Catholic idea, I think, the big Santa in the sky with a scorecard. And then when you hit the end of your life, let's look at that scorecard and that's going to tell you, you know, door A or door B. Heaven or hell. Heaven or hell. Again, hell is not the idea of hell as it is in a Catholic faith, which is then being, in, which is then being inherited by all the other religions, other other branches of Christianity, is completely um, unbiblical. It's 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 a it's an absolute heresy. It's a way to um, it removes so much love and applies so much judgment, and it all um, might be the most the idea of hell and all the things around it might be the, one of the most blasphemous things that exists. Really? That's quite a bold statement. Because it removes love. It, it removes love, mate. It removes judgment. It, it, it takes all the things that are actually godly out of the picture and actually it replaces them with things which are man-made. Power, that, and judgment. I, and I think that is the experience know, many people... That is the feeling that many people have, not that, oh, God loves me and I'm filled up with this wonderful, warm feeling. It's, it's fear it's, if they believe it. That's it's, right. God is judging me all the time. Oh, my goodness, I'm not, good, I'm not good enough. I keep failing. I feel ashamed, shame about sex, shame about all sorts yep. of things because of this, this idea of judgment and how. And you're saying, actually, that's bullshit. Yep. And instead, let's look for... We will judge ourselves enough. We, we judge ourselves. We always constantly judge ourselves far more than we will ever, ever find ourselves judged by others mm. or God, if you have that idea. Um, and so let's go to the other direction and go, let's talk about grace. So grace says 
that which points to it's part of the story that you were told that you were told but you were told in a malformed way you were told in a way in which you would be under fear and under power if we turn it around and we say grace is abundant it is it is literally um inf infinite it's unconditional it's for everybody everybody and it says no matter how imperfect you are god will keep you as perfect in his sight so it's it's the opposite the opposite yeah <laughs> it's completely the opposite and so how does that how does that apply the other day this is a really small example the other day i i had made an appointment to meet someone in town it wasn't someone i know well i knew this person was traveling to see me they sent me a message 20 minutes before our meeting and they said i'm nearly there i was at home there was no way i was going to make it i was in the middle of something at home there was no way i was, could stop what i was doing and be out there i was going to miss this meeting and i just collapsed i felt so ashamed because you forgot I'd forgotten and, and I knew how much effort this person, how, what this meeting meant to this person and the effort that they were going to to meet me. And I screwed up. No question about it. I completely screwed up. And that shame was going to stay there until that other person said, oh, no, it's okay, Rob. And what i'm curious about is in those moments and and that's a tiny moment of shame like i've got things that i'm way more ashamed of that i'm not going to tell you on this podcast <laughs> oh, cool. uh, i'll go on <laughs> but that, but that was a really big one like i was in a hole i was in a hole for, for a few hours until that person got back to me and i knew they were annoyed and they said but they, but they said it was okay and it was only when they said it, it's okay that i could come climb out of my shame hole so I so judge myself so hard. I need I needed his forgiveness. And what I'm what I've been curious about since that experience is going, what would it mean to find grace for myself in that moment? Mm. Because I because because grace exists. Mm -hmm. What would it be like to be able to find that to not need to be fixed by others, mm -hmm. but actually to find grace that is there, mm -hmm. that is there, and it's just it's just whether I want to take it or not, whether I accept it. And so, in, in fact, the, the acceptance of grace is insanely. The Bible says, labor that you enter into the rest. So the rest is that I stop struggling, I stop striving, I stopped obsessing about whether this person likes me or not, or whether, you know, of, or how rubbish I am. The rest is all this stuff that I constantly keep myself busy with, you know, the need to get money or the need to um, to get to things, you know, to, to attain things. And it's as labor that you enter into the rest. So in other words, spend the energy. You're going to spend energy because you're going to spend energy doing something. If you're alive, you're expending energy doing something. Expend it so that you enter into the rest, which means that you do things which allow grace to arrive. 
And for me, we're, we're now we're back to kind of the start of the podcast or the start of our conversation where we're talking about being present with what is and doing practices which connect you back to yourself rather than absencing. Because often, you know, often if I if I find myself into a find myself in a shame spiral, dude, I cannot turn YouTube on quick enough and just medicate. <laughs> yeah, you I know, had that kind of thing. I had an experience quite similar to that actually, where um, I was in my situation. It was I was doing a mindfulness in schools course. I was teaching a course, and it was like week three, and then I got an email from the teacher saying, "Andy, where are you?" <laughs> And I just hadn't turned up. <laughs> yeah. You weren't there. I wasn't there. There was no way I could get there. <laughs> and I was just imagining how furious the teacher was, how she thought I could never trust him again. I'm never getting him back in uh, to teach here. I was imagining the pupils in the class saying, uh, how can we trust this guy or take him seriously if he can't even remember to turn up? Um, I was like, imagining them just being so filled with judgment and I was imagining how my future was going to be so negatively impacted by what all of yeah. this stuff. It's over, right? It's, it's done. over. My life's over. And, <laughs> and, and for me, um, shame, I, the way I understand shame is, is um, there's something that's like, I'm uniquely bad. Like no one else would have been this stupid. Mm, there we go. I'm the only one in the world that would, that yeah, would have been such an nice. idiot to, as to not remember to go to week three. I've already been to week one and week two. How did I not remember week three? And I was so angry with myself. And um, I don't know if you would call this grace, but I had a, my, my supervisor um, immediately after that, I booked in a session to see her. To, to see her. I don't quite know how that ended up happening. Maybe that was also a mistake because like, if I was in the school, how could I do the session with the supervisor? But anyway, we talked about all of it. And what really helped was particularly questioning those beliefs of, am I the only person who's ever forgotten to go to something in the whole Beautiful. world ever? <laughs> yeah. And that softened my feeling of shame quite significantly. And, and then my assumptions about how much they're going to hate me. Well, actually, have you not done three courses at the school already and shown that you can be trusted and turned up like 25 times? Yeah. <laughs> Do you think maybe there's some trust built up that means she probably will speak to you again. She probably won't hate you forever. And then it's softening a bit more. And I'm like, oh. uh. <laughs> this isn't the worst thing that's ever happened. Yeah. And then I had an even... Um, an even greater uh, way to, ha to help me let go of this whole experience was that I'd signed up to do this, um, this thing in the evening where you learn to be a listener. And, um, someone, and they asked for someone to stand in front of the whole group. So this is like 50 people that I've never met. They said, can someone tell a story that will teach us something about you? Can be anything. And I told them this story that happened like two hours earlier. I was like, guys, I fucked up. I felt so ashamed. This is what happened. And I was looking at their faces and it was like I had this sample of the world's population to see it. Will these humans who don't even yeah. know me judge me yeah. Yeah. as an idiot? 
<laughs> and what was amazing is that they had two rounds from the list of the listening exercise where they had to go around and show that they'd heard what I'd said by each saying little bits. And then they had a round of going around and saying positive things about me and my character based oh, on the story I told. Come on. <laughs> and it was incredible. They were like, well, you clearly really care. Um, you know, you want to be honest. You're very vulnerable. You're brave. All of these things they reflected as positive things in a story that for me started as I'm so ashamed of how much of an idiot I am. Yeah. Yeah. What an act of grace, right? I, I, I feel like a really full circle here. Like when we were talking at the start about um, being in relation to yourself, being in relation with others and, and being in relation with the land or the planet or the system that you're in. Um, and your comment about America and how, how polarized it is. No one was polarized in that room no. with you. No. It was, there was just grace and grace, grace removes all, all those things, you know, and it's, what's lovely is that everyone was there who they wanted the best for you and your supervisor wanted the best for you. Yeah. And, you know, the Bible says, love your enemies, you know, cause it's, e it's easy. It says, you know, it's easy to say, to love someone who loves you. It's the Bible says it's easy. If someone gives you something, they give you something back. It's like, yeah, well, you know, that's barely 101 being a human, you know, that's, you know, <laughs> anyone, can do that. anyone can, anyone can do that. Anyone can do that. The sacrifice is, you know, it says, you know, praying for your enemies or, or doing good for your enemies. And so, and enemies, I think means anyone who you're, who you feel in opposition to. And I think it's probably, you know, and so what does it mean to show grace for those people that you're in opposition to? So now, now all of a sudden the Jesus story becomes meaningful because when, it, when he says that he died for everyone, it's an example for us. Yeah. You know, I didn't just die for the people I like. <laughs> he didn't die for the people that he liked. He didn't die for his disciples. He was dying for the people who, were, who killed him. Mm. You know? One, something you've also just helped me to realize is when you talk about grace as being holding someone in, in, in perfection, Mm -hmm. That in the challenging of the shame hole, on some level, <laughs> you are holding the, yourself in, uh, not, if not perfection, at least there is a part of you that knows that you're not a moron. Part of you is like, you're definitely a moron. But part of you is able to recognize, actually, I'm not, because otherwise you would just stay in it forever. Look, well, there's yeah. just more evidence. I'm yeah. definitely the stupidest person alive. And you just keep believing that. That's but right. It's, it's, so it depends. Sorry, finish, finish what you're saying. Sorry. But fortunately, there was a part of me that through, I don't know, through whatever meditation or things that I've learned could question, hang on, I don't think that is definitely true about me. Mm -hmm. And that, that and, 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 and so you're saying that that is grace, that, that holding myself in a, in a higher standard. That's right. And, and again, doing a judgment on the natural situation. I always, I always like this idea of, um, I think Rob Bell might talk about this, about third way thinking. So right, wrong, and then there's a third way. And I, I like to call that righteous. Like there are lots of people who want to be right in the world, but there aren't many people who want to be righteous. And righteous is actually being in that place of grace. 
right is 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 if you're right or wrong, then it's is the world ten thousand years old or is it nine billion years old? Irrelevant. Wrong question, because believing whether it's ten thousand years old or nine billion years old makes no difference to you today. Makes a lick of difference. Doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't grow you spiritually. It doesn't. It doesn't deepen your love. It doesn't deepen your grace. Wrong question. <laughs> the the you know the right question is. Um, when the world was created, what's the quality of its creation? <laughs> you know, that that's an interesting question because now we're getting to, oh, what is it? Ah, oh, the world, the, God looked at it and it was very good. So when we create things, they're very good. And that points to something that Charles Eisenstein said, which is that when we create something for each other, the creation is very good. Whether it was 10,000 years ago or 9 billion years ago, that's, that's us and right or wrong. What's the quality of it? What's the quality of the creation? It's very good okay well, that's what matters and equally the the quality it's whether you're a moron or not because you missed that meeting whether i'm a moron or not because i missed that meeting i'm plainly in the wrong if there's a right and a wrong in that situation the right thing would have been to turn up the wrong thing was not to turn up yeah the third way is going grace which is which is a complete it's not on the same it's not even on the same spectrum as right and wrong. Whether or not I turn up, I'm still perfect. That's right. And then all of a sudden what that does, and I don't know if you just felt that, but I just felt that going, because now all of a sudden, I was talking about this with with one of the guys in church yesterday, was that we're going to have an, and this is what we're talking about. When you're talking about reimagining the future, we're going to have each of us as a human being, we're going to have an impulse of, what we want to do in the world. There's an impulse, and it's not going to be an impulse of going, oh, uh, this is how I solve climate change. But there's going to be an impulse of like, I feel every time I see a picture of the world burning, I feel pain and I want to do something. I feel an impulse. And the impulse hasn't got a creation yet. The impulse still exists just as a as this, just that. And it has a flavor to it. It might be green. Yours might be green. Mine might be blue. They're not the same. If you and I have, this, have a similar impulse, it's going to have a different texture to it just because you're you and I'm me. And because of that, when we create from that impulse, when we do something with that impulse, you might set up a charity or an NGO. I might decide to move into the woods and never use plastic again. Now, who's, whose impulse is right or wrong? There's no right or wrong. We just res- we just we just responding to our impulse and we're creating from it. Mm-hmm. Now, when you start your charity, you might find out in your first three years of, of of your business that you're using a bank, which is you know connected with some pretty shady practices. Oh no, you know, or you might or you might be using a plastic product, or you might be deliberately using a pl- plastic product because you kind of have to because you want to achieve this thing. It's the the impulse is always perfect. The creation is always going to be our creation or our attempt is always, we're always going to get it wrong in our, in our attempts. But if we all sit around and I point at your charity and I go, well, that charity didn't work because of this and that and that, we're not going to get anywhere in this world because we're constantly judging each other. Yeah. You know, and this is what I'm noticing is that if we're trying to please each other by some invisible standard which doesn't actually exist, we're all, we will all just do that. 
that the only way forward for us to reimagine the future is through love and grace. Because we have to be able to create, and I see this so much in the Black Lives Matter at the movement, Black Lives Matter movement at the moment, where black people are saying to white people, do something, you're going to screw up because you've never you've never tried this before. You've never tried to break down structural races, racism or anything. So your first attempt, you're, doing, you're taking baby steps now. So in fact, the black community is holding the white community sometimes, way more probably than it needs to, holding it in a tremendous amount of grace because it's saying we want you to succeed and you're going to get it wrong. And I think that is an example of where grace exists already. In a, in a, in a, in a, and there's a reason that the black church is so strong and so meaningful is because the black church is linked directly to their survival. Just, just like um, the Aboriginal First Nations, their church or the land or the way they lived was directly related to their survival. The reason the black church and the love and the grace that exists is because it's directly related to the, to the survival of the, of the black people. What do you mean by that? <clears throat> why I watched, yeah, go ahead. Why, why is it that they, the church is more, they are more dependent on church for their survival? Because it's part of the cult. It's actually part of the culture. What's happening? I think a lot of white church. This is um, this is a really generalized statement. But generally speaking, white church is a place. Yes, it's cultural, but it's not spiritually cultural. It's socially cultural, well, far more than anything spiritual. Far more. How much love and grace did you experience in white church? Not much. None. Not much. <laughs> right. Maybe none. Maybe none. But when I picture a black church, and I haven't actually been to one, the, the, the pictures that you see on TV, and they're like, they're singing, they're joyful, they're dancing, they're so, it looks like a fun place to be. I think everything is there. I think everything is there. If you, I watched George, someone told me to watch George Floyd's funeral, which I did. And something landed which was like, ah, oh, culture. It's Black culture is the only thing that keeps black people alive because nothing else keeps them alive. Wow. And the church is part of that culture. It is indistinguishable. Hip-hop, the church, um, any other part of black culture you wanted to name fashion, everything, basketball, all that is all, it's all tied together. And it's that culture is, and it's not, it's not, I'm not saying it's monolithic. It's not one culture. It's, it's incredibly varied and, and, and is in so many different places. But church is there to aid, to tell stories for its survival. Black people have reimagined the myth of, have taken the story of the, children of Israel being slaves in Egypt as their own story, as being slaves in America and that God will give them freedom. They've taken that myth and, and they're using that in the same way where the Aboriginals go, that mountain over there is a lizard. The black people go, we are the Israelites and God has promised us freedom. Are they actually the Israelites? No, some, some black people argue that they actually are. 
it doesn't matter whether you believe that or not. It's the same with, with creation. But they've taken that metaphor and within the church they use that metaphor so powerfully that it constantly gives black people hope. Mm. Because it has to. Because it has to. And so then, what does it mean for black people to live with their oppressor every day? Every day they wake up and they go to the shop or they go to the bank and they actually have to live alongside the oppressor, the white person. And they live with them. How much grace. <laughs> it's, it's astonishing. And the thing, it's, it's incredibly moving to see how much grace black people have had to have in order to survive. I heard a story the other day, I was, I was listening to this amazing podcast called Black History for White People. And um, there's a story of a lynching. There's a kid who gets killed. He'd, he'd been in a car accident, a black kid, he'd been in a car accident and his head was a bit wobbly afterwards. And a few days later, he was heard shouting in a flat and the police went to check on him. And there's actually camera footage of it without giving him any time he they perceived him as a threat and just killed him now his father appears on the courtroom steps with the white sheriff and he let the he lets the white he lets the white sheriff speak first this guy is angry this guy's son was killed in cold blood and the person who is leading who is responsible for that, the sheriff who is responsible for his people, is standing on the steps, giving all these false facts. And the dad lets him speak first, because he can speak first. And there are so many examples of um, that thing I talked about, about praying for your enemies or doing good for your enemies, that's constantly there in the black community. Again, what did I say? The future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed and it's going to be with the poor and the oppressed first. You know, there's so many examples of grace that we can take that are, I think that are invisible to us because we just live our lives as white people going, my life is great, thanks. And meanwhile, there's this bubble of grace that's constantly around us going, I see you white person and you're completely ignorant. What did Jesus say? Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. In case people don't know, that was when he was being crucified. That's right. <laughs> so he was at, in the ultimate position of suffering and had the most reasons to be hateful. Angry, exactly. Angry. To be hate, yeah, exactly. And I'm not saying that monolithically the black community isn't hating and isn't angry and doesn't want to have their own retribution. And, I, and there's plenty of examples of that. And you go, yeah, that's I get that. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And enough. all. And also, there are just insane, incredible, you know, so so many examples of, of, um, you could say God's love and grace, but you don't have to attribute God to it if you don't want to. As a starting point, I really love for people who don't believe in God, or for when they hear the word God, that they're unable to separate it from the idea of a big angry man in the sky with the scorecard. And I get that, like I've, I've come across that a lot amongst the people that I hang out with. Um, I heard the idea the other day that God is other people. 
which is what we've been talking about, which is what we've been talking about. When you had your experience, because of the grace that people showed you, they were, they, they were showing you that grace, so they were God to you. And in the same way, if I'm worshipping God, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to love you. And in fact, the Bible says, he who hates his brother hates God. So that, that idea actually tracks in many ways. I can't go, yeah, I believe in God and I'm going to kill you. Actually, no, because um, God is other people. Mm. Well, but I've also heard, it also makes me think of um, people say, some people say the most important relationship we have is the one with the land. Some people say the most important relationship, so loving the land. Some people say the most important relationship we have is with yourself. Yeah, great. I love this. This is great. um, What I've heard Eckhart Tolle said once is the most important relationship you have is with the present moment. Mm -hmm. Are you like, I'm bored of the present moment? Do you hate what's going on right now? Are you anxious about the present moment? Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought that was like, whoa, that really gets to... That's everything. That's life. That is life. What is your relationship with life? <laughs> yeah. And can you love life? And is God therefore the present moment? Is God everything yeah. that is now? Which is it? Which is then that eternity? Which is that thing that Charles Eisenstein talks about? Because then you create. Then you, if you create things from pre and present, if you're present with everything in this moment and you create from it. It cannot be true. It cannot not be true. <laughs> it cannot not be true. <laughs> because there's a truth to it. There is, the, you know, there's, there's always a truth to it. And other people will be able to look at it and make, find all kinds of holes in it. It's not like, it's like a perfect moment, but it's a true moment. You know, and then grace covers everything else. If, so I don't really understand that. <laughs> so if you create so, something now, it can't not be true. It can't not not be true. As in, if I'm, if I if I completely absence myself, then I can just walk through the supermarket and buy a ton of plastic stuff because I need this, I need that, I need that. I'm thinking about the money I need to make, and then I get home and I'm not thinking about the present moment. So instead of putting the plastic in my recycling, I'm putting it in my top bin, and all these things that are actually completely counter the, to the things that I know are true or the things that are important. You know, it, it's, a kind of, it's kind of an absence. It's just kind of all this kind of, it's just all fluff. It's all, you know. But if I walk through the supermarket and go, I'm shopping. <laughs> How do I want to shop? Actually, I don't want to buy plastic today. All right, cool. Oh, that's interesting. You know, already then you're you're in a completely different place. And then when you leave after your shop, it might be a much smaller shop than you initially planned. Or you might buy plastic, right? But you've but you've done it intentionally. You go right. So I'm going to buy plastic this time, but next time I won't buy plastic. And so there's there's a truth there's a truth to every moment. And even though someone could point at you and say, "Hey, you bought plastic," you go, "Well, give me grace me grace me that one." Grace me that one. Next one, the next one I buy won't be plastic. It's like all these people who are who are like militant vegans and say, you know, if you're having a burger once every four months, you can't be a vegan. I mean, whatever, get over it. You know, 
grace, dude. We're all we're all headed. We're all. What what are we tending towards? Everything has to tend. We can't expect perfection from each other. There's so much. We're back to that thing again. There's so much bullshit in all of us, yeah. and unless we can learn to sit with our own bullshit, and then others, which is really what grace is, <laughs> and where love starts, then actually we can tend. We then collectively we can start tending towards something. Can you hear my dog barking in the background? I can. <laughs> What's um, he saying? <laughs> I think he's saying, don't leave me. Don't leave me. That's right. My dad's about to go out. Uh, so if we're to sort of tie all this together with, to come, to come back to reimagining the world, mm. um, it seems like there's a little bit of a paradox where what you're saying is, grace, grace is imagining that we are actually already perfect. And then when the judgment comes in with we're expecting each other to be perfect and then we're angry with each other when we're not. <laughs> also, there's no such thing as a perfect world. So how do we sort of tie this all together in, in answering the question, what, what are we, how are we, what is what we're really imagining? Because I, I know that this is one of the words you like to focus on most. What we're, tr what we're really imagining is a new way of relating. A, a new relationship mm -hmm. with everything, with ourselves, mm -hmm. with other people, with the earth. That's what we need yep. to reimagine. Not the thing itself, not the goal. This is what I want to be yes. different. This is the thing. This We want it to look like this. What we're trying to reimagine is our relationship to everything. And so if you look at a rock over a significant period of time, you'll see that a rock is not a thing, but in fact a process in itself. There's a process in which it came into being and there's a process in which it becomes sand. So, so that's actually the truth. The truth is, even though, it's, even though we cannot see that, I will not see the rock in process in my lifetime. Uh, and so for me, it's always going to be a rock. But it actually is in process. And what you're talking about, about relating, is that when we're relating, nothing is ever fixed no so the the, the aboriginal um gets the yam and cooks the yam and eats the yam and then tomorrow he wakes up and then gets another yam and there's, and there's no there's never a point where his relationship with the yam has been has has reached a final place no and the yam goes back in the soil and the yam goes back in the soil and and so everything you're, I think you're absolutely right. And then once we start relating to everything, then we see that everything is in fact process, which is what I talked about at the start. You, you asked me the question, what does the future look like? I guess, it, I guess maybe that's an answer is that actually we are willing to constantly be in process with everything that's, that's around us. And to love and, each other and while stop. we are in that process. We have to, right? We have to, because as soon as we start judging, as soon as we start judging, we actually go out of process because then something becomes fixed. This is my measure. This is what you've done. They don't match up. So in fact, we, we, then, we then fall out of process, which is why story is so important because story gives us lessons in process rather than lessons in absolutes. Mm. And, and stories can then take on new meanings as things, as the rock begins to disintegrate, how do we then relate to that rock as it begins to disintegrate? Because that constant, that's constantly happening. 
And I think as a part of that, I think it has to be, I think a spiritual system has to build, has to build around that. Because right now, the, the thing that gives us meaning is this is my 10 pounds in my account that's the thing that gives me meaning and so if that if if the fixed thing can no longer give me meaning then how does the process give meaning how does how does me being in process give me meaning then i have to see myself as part of that process which is not just for the length of my life but it has to extend beyond my life and now all of a sudden we're now in a collectively in a spiritual place but having a natural existence. We're collectively in a spiritual place in the sense that, what do you mean by in a spiritual place? So, by that I mean, if we're all in process together and we don't care about how much you or I am earning, then what's the thing that's going to give us meaning? If my possessions aren't the thing that gives me meaning in the thing that we talk about, then what gives our relationship a mean that gives it gives it meaning? What gives my life a meaning? Our relationships. The relationships. The relationship with the land, the relationship between each other. And then all of a sudden we hit life and death and we and we see that we see this constantly evolving thing and then we have to we have to have a relationship with that i mean this this is for podcast number 2 because we have such an extraordinarily bad relationship with death and endings in the western world that's the reason that's one of the reasons why it's so hard for us to actually find any spiritual meaning because we have such a fear of because we have such a fear of death but actually, if death becomes part of the system and our, and our understanding, then all of a sudden um, it widens out. And I guess it's it's spiritual from the point of view that we are in relation to everything, and it's and it, and it's not you are in relationship to me, and it's just us two. But I'm in relationship to you, and you're in relationship to that rock, and that rock's in relationship to my mum who lives in Queensland. And I guess, for one of a better word. That's what a spiritual system is, is understanding that actually um, that we have, to, we have to find ourselves in relation in that way. And that and that, that and that that is the good thing and that those things are the best things in life. Yeah. And, it's, and the Bible doesn't talk about happiness. The Bible talks about joy, mm. which, are two diff- which are two really different things. I think you can be joyful um, at a funeral, you know, you you can be fully living and alive at a funeral, and you and you might be utterly struck down by grief, and yet I think there's still that thing of aliveness and joy in it because this is all part of it. Yeah. Beautiful. I think that's a good place to end it. <laughs> <laughs> the end. The end of this podcast. <laughs> Indeed, but it's just one podcast and a process and podcasts and listening to them and sharing them and people thinking different things as a result of listening to them. And Yes. So thank you. Uh, yeah, and I think that's, uh, that's another big part, I think, as we hit the end 
often the only thing you can do with an ending is just be grateful for the time that preceded it. <laughs> so I'm really, I'm really thankful for just the space you've held and you've deepened a lot of things. Just because the space was here, it's deepened a lot of things for me as well, mm. um, which I really appreciate. You're very welcome. I've really enjoyed it too. And um, yeah, particularly this idea of what, what, it, what it means to have grace and hold each other, be held by something higher. Maybe you think people might not think of God, but to have a higher expectation of yourself, mm-hmm. not as opposed to judging yourself as not good enough. I find that really powerful. There's so much more I want to say. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> we can do another episode. And this is and this is the end. <laughs> I love you, mate. Thank you so much. I love you too. Thank you, yeah. Rob. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining the World podcast. Do you know someone who would enjoy this episode? If so, please pass it on.